From the University of California, Irvine, this is the UCI Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bell, and I'd like to welcome you back to our show featuring informal yet informative conversations with the people who make UCI the fascinating place it is. On our last episode, we had an in-depth conversation with a biomedical engineer about his group's work to develop treatments for dysfunctional joints. Today, we're turning to faculty members in two different schools. In our first segment, we'll hear from a professor of informatics in the Donald Brent School of Information and Computer Science who has an interesting take on the culture and history of video games. Then we'll check in with an astronomy professor from the School of Physical Sciences who recently helped implement a new telescope instrument to hunt for planets outside of our solar system. UCI is a leading institution when it comes to video games. We were the first large public university to build an eSports arena, which is now home turf to our scholarship-supported varsity gamers who are consistently seated in the top positions for major video game tournaments in the United States and abroad. UCI is also a leader in the academic study of video games, from their development to their influence on young people in terms of cognition, education, and social adaptation. One strong subfield of games study here at UCI centers on the participation by members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community. One of our faculty members has even written a book on the subject. Our conversation with that professor author is up next. We are here in Donald Bren Hall to interview Assistant Professor Bonnie Ruber from the Department of Informatics here at UCI. They have a new book coming out, Video Games Have Always Been Queer. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's exciting. And I already have some copies with me, so I've okay. been starting to sell advanced copies um, to my students, which is really exciting. So this is going to be a book for an academic audience primarily, or do you think this is a, a book for the general public as well? I think it's... I think it's kind of a mix. So it comes from an academic press, and I'm an academic, so that's kind of the perspective I'm writing from. But I used to be a journalist, um, and my background's in writing, so I try to be more approachable. And I imagine that also for folks who work on games, who make them, game students, so a little bit more industry, hopefully it's a book that kind of bridges the academic and the non-academic space. Tell me a little bit about your you know, lead up to writing this book and what, what it's all about from your perspective. Yeah, so it's, it's a topic that's really personal for me because I am a queer person. I love video games. Um, I've been working in games for a long time. I used to be a games journalist. Um, and then I went to grad school and thought I was going to study literature and instead study digital media. And I do a lot of games organizing around queer communities. So I run a conference called the Queerness in Games Conference that's just like 300 queer people in a, in a building for the weekend working on these issues. So the book really came together for me in the last few years as I've been thinking about how queer studies and uh, just queer activism can come to video games and how we can think about that a little bit differently than the kind of dominant narratives, how we normally tell those stories. And so you go back, way back into the history, the origin of the video game industry. You even talk about uh, Atari Pong, which is a real kind of a rudimentary video game uh, that really kind of started it. Well, you say there are games that kind of preceded that, but that's really the big title that, that really got things going. Then leading all the way up into the present day when we've got very sophisticated you know, single-shooter games and these almost worlds that are, are exist online and you track 
LGBTQ uh, involvement in games from that very early time up into the present. So tell us a little bit about that sort of arc, if you will. Yeah, so I mean, you're totally right. The project starts really early in the early 70s with Atari's Pong. Um, And Pong is such an interesting example because it's not representational, right? There are no people on screen. So it seems really odd to talk about it as a game that represents LGBT folks. Um, But the idea behind the project is that if you take queer theory and kind of more conceptual thinking about queerness, then you can find these ways that it really resonates with even something like batting a ball back and forth in Pong. And that that's a way to kind of go back to these early games, reclaim them, and find the place of that queer identity in those early games. Um, and that works also kind of alongside other colleagues I have in this area I work in, which is called Queer Game Studies, um, who are doing more uh, historical archival work where they dig up the queer and trans folks who have been making games since the 70s. So it's really a project of looking backwards and thinking about the history of games in ways we haven't thought about it before. You are teaching in in the Department of Informatics here at UCI. Are you the only one kind of in Is this your niche in the department, or do you have colleagues in, in at UCI who are doing similar work? A little bit of both. So definitely the queer side of game studies or games and um, you might say gender and sexuality and diversity, that's definitely the thing that I do. Um, I have a really amazing network of colleagues that goes out across the country and across the world who are also connected to this queer game studies kind of rising movement. Um, within informatics and UCI, I have a really great set of collaborators around games, kind of more broadly. Mm-hmm. So Aaron Trammell, who's my colleague down the hall, Josh Tannenbaum, there's a bunch of us in this department, Constance Seinkohler, Kurt Squire, Katie Salen, Mimi Ito, and then on other parts of campus, um, in media studies, there are folks in anthropology. So it's actually, it's a really awesome place to be right now to do games work because there's just a kind of critical mass right now and a lot of excitement around it at UCI. There is, I've had discussions with some of the people you mentioned um, and their interaction with companies on the outside, Blizzard, riots. Uh, Do you also have similar interactions with the outside world? And do you talk about issues of LGBTQ equality with these people? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the games industry is something that I try and speak to as much as I can. Um, There's a big annual games conference, a games industry conference called the Game Developers Conference, which is coming up in two weeks in San Francisco. Um, And that's just thousands and thousands of professional games industry folks. Um, So I've been speaking there for the last few years about diversity and inclusion, often around education or making community spaces. There are so many places in Southern California, these big studios like Blizzard, like Riot, Um, And they've been reaching out more and more to bring people in to talk about diversity in their studio. Um, There's uh, Amazon Games nearby. There are a lot of possible connections here. Do you think now is kind of a particularly ripe time to be talking about these issues and your book coming out? um, Do you you feel like you're sort of early to the game or late to the game or kind of right in the middle uh, where you should be? I feel like I see my role as like the person trying to lead the game, but in a very collaborative community way. So um, on the academic side, for example, I did my PhD at Berkeley. um, And when I was there doing that work, everyone I talked to when I said I was working on queer studies and games, they said, what is that? That's ridiculous. Who does that? 
Um, but in just the past, gosh, like five years or so, it feels like there's been a real swell. There are more and more folks getting their PhDs in game studies, more and more folks who identify specifically as queer game studies scholars. And I like to think that it's through the community organizing I do that kind of helps raise those people up. So I think it's a great moment. I'm going to keep fighting for it to be a great moment. Now, your book, is, is what, what would you say in the book is something, uh, that a, a message that you would impart to people who are uh, just getting into this field? Is there something in this book that is a particularly strong message to help them, encourage them in their studies? Yeah, I mean, I think for folks who study games or folks who make games or even just play them, that there's this long history of people being made to feel marginalized, right? LGBT people or people of color, people with disabilities, because games culture can just be really toxic and really exclusionary. And I think the biggest goal of the book is just to kind of stick a flag in the ground and say, like, this belongs to you too. Like, even when it's really hard, even when you're made to feel left out, like, video games belong to you too. They're also for you too. So my hope is to kind of lay that groundwork so that other people can come in and say, no, you know what, this is mine. I'm going to interpret it the way that feels right to me. I'm going to play it the way that feels right to me. Um, and to not have to fight that fight every time. <laughs> you know? I see a lot of similarities in game culture or the you know playing of games, especially these online games where many people from around the world are involved. You have anonymity of the players. So that may invite a certain kind of aggressiveness on the part of some people. Is Do you think there's a... Um, and you see it even in, on other, you know, Reddit, um, on YouTube, on different platforms online, do you feel that that sort of remoteness or online factor is something that will contribute to people being a little more intolerant and aggressive? I think that's definitely part of it. I think it's possible to hide behind social media accounts or hide behind forum posts that aren't tied to a specific identity. Um, And there's been a lot of it. It's definitely come to a head over the last few years, but I've been working in games now since 2005, 2005. Um, so I've been harassed all along. I started receiving death threats in 2005, and it's been 14 years now. So it's it, it's a it's an issue that's been around for a long time. Though I do think it's kind of you know really really becoming a bigger and bigger issue. And then the hope is to be able to to push back against that, to be able to find ways to make more inclusive spaces, even within a culture that suffers from those problems. And you think your book will contribute to that? Uh, That's your hope? I hope so, yeah. I hope that a part of that project of saying video games belong to queer people, video games belong to diverse people, it's a way to make that space, right? It's a way to push back against the argument that says video games are supposed to be for gamer bros and only gamer bros to say, you know what, we're just as valid here. I think actually the way of the future for games isn't the same kind of games we've always made for the same kind of audiences. There's just a growing number of diverse folks making games. Games themselves are diversifying. So I think this really is like we are the future and we're going to see a big change in games culture. Seems like there's some opportunities out there for for people to develop different types of games. I think so. And I think that big companies, so we tend to refer to them as AAA companies, these really big games industry companies, I think they're slowly opening up to more diverse characters. I think it's a slow process. And I definitely don't think that's the only way to make progress. 
but we're seeing more and more LGBT characters. We're seeing more and more diversity initiatives. So it's, I mean, it's a good moment for folks to get involved and to really push to make things different. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion and a fascinating book, and I appreciate you spending some time with me. Thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah. Professor Ruberg's book, Video Games Have Always Been Queer, published by the New York University Press, is available now. With the help of tools such as the Kepler Space Telescope, astronomers have in the past decade discovered thousands of exoplanets, worlds outside of our solar system. And now they're estimating that there are many millions of these orbiting bodies throughout our galaxy. A scientist at UCI is part of a team that's looking for previously unseen exoplanets, those orbiting relatively dim M-dwarf stars, which emit light in infrared wavelengths. We'll talk about the challenges of detecting these planets and a new tool astronomers are using to make the job easier. Coming up next. Okay, we are here in uh, Frederick Rhinus Hall, and we're going to talk to Paul Robertson, who is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy here at UCI, and this is about an exoplanet hunting telescope instrument. So, uh, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about your your instrument and how long it's taken to get it to this point where you've you've got your first paper out on this thing today. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, the, that's right, the Habitable Zone Planet Finder is the name of it. We, we sort of named it quite literally for what we want it to do. Uh, and it's a spectrometer, so, so it will attach, it is attached now to a telescope, uh, the 10-meter Hobby Everly Telescope at McDonald Observatory in Texas. And it is designed to find planets around nearby stars, and specifically the uh, very small, very cool stars that uh, make up the majority of the stars closest to the sun. Uh, and so what we're really looking for and what we've optimized, uh, HPF is the short name, uh, we've optimized it to take advantage of the infrared light that those stars emit. Uh, and we're really focusing on detecting planets that might potentially be Earth-like around those stars. And what is the class of planets, or stars, rather? Yeah, those are called M-dwarf stars, uh, sometimes referred to in sort of popular media as red dwarf stars. Uh, so as stars get smaller and cooler, they get redder in color, and so that's why they have that name. So now, part of the paper, you discuss Barnard star, which is a pretty close star to our sun, and it's a red dwarf star, if I'm correct? That's right. It is a red dwarf star. Uh, it is, after the Alpha Centauri system, it's the second closest stellar companion to the Sun. Uh, and it's a fascinating star. It, it's rocketing through the galaxy at a speed that's faster than we've measured for any other star in the sky. It just it shoots across the sky. And if you take pictures of it year after year, you can actually see this motion on the sky quite easily. Does that not make it difficult for the HPF to track and, and analyze and study it? It's not too difficult because even for a star that's moving really rapidly, uh, this is a motion that we measure over years, and, and a typical measurement that we make on Barnard Star takes uh, somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes. And so over that period of time, it's not, it's not moving... Uh, so fast across the sky, its its motion is mostly dominated by 
the rotation of the Earth, which telescopes now are programmed to, to take care of automatically. There was a recent discovery of a, uh, a large planet orbiting Barnard Star, correct? And so... That's right. Uh, this was something that sort of came up literally as we were submitting our paper for publication. There was an announcement. The planet's not actually that massive. I think it's somewhere around three times the mass of the Earth. Uh, and it's in a it's in a fairly distant orbit as far as what we're able to detect. And so uh, that was something that we had to check to make sure our measurements were consistent with. But when we compared our measurements to where that planet was expected to be in its orbit, we actually discovered that we didn't expect much of a signal to appear during the times that we were measuring. And so we, we don't have, based on HPF's measurements, a whole lot of information about the Barnard Star planet yet. But what we do see is that our measurements are incredibly sensitive. So we're, we're able to uh, measure the Doppler shift of the star, which is how we infer the presence of planets, uh, we're doing that with infrared light much more precisely than has ever been done before. And so planets like Barnard's star's planet should be uh, something that we can readily detect with HPF's capabilities, and we're really excited about that. Now, HPF, that's Habitable, habitable Planet Finder. What do you mean by habitable? And yeah, so when astronomers say habitable or habitable zone, what they that's sort of shorthand for saying that the star... It, or I'm sorry, the planet is just at the right distance from the star where it receives enough sunlight that you might have temperatures on the surface that would enable uh, the presence of liquid water. And when we're looking for life on Earth, the one constant we see among every life form is that they are dependent on the presence of liquid water. So if you want to start looking for life in the galaxy, looking for water is a good place to start. And would that lead you to study other, t other aspects of the planet, such as the atmosphere and, and things of that nature? Right. So finding a planet in what we call the habitable zone is just a first step. But that gets us really excited. If we find a planet that's small like the Earth and it's in this liquid water zone, then that ranks it at a very high priority to be observed with something like the James Webb Space Telescope, which is set to launch here in a couple of years. Uh, that's the kind of telescope that would potentially have the capability uh, to measure the atmosphere of a, a planet in the habitable zone. But your instrument, HPF, will be a very good way to identify M-dwarf stars that have planets surrounding them? Exactly. So we'll be sort of making the target list for a future space telescope to search their atmospheres. You were saying by being able to detect this infrared or near-infrared signal, that opens up a really wide range of, of stars that you could study? Right. So historically, instruments that search for exoplanets focus primarily on stars like the Sun. Uh, and that's because they put out most of their light at optical wavelengths. And that makes the, the construction of a planet-hunting instrument a little simpler. But these nearest stars, a lot of them are, again, their, their temperatures are much lower. And so that shifts their, their radiation to redder wavelengths. And, and they're actually brightest at wavelengths that are just a bit too red for your eye to see. So that's why we call it the near-infrared. And so if we can tune our instrument to those wavelengths, 
uh, we can make more precise measurements of their Doppler shifts and, and find planets that we wouldn't be able to find using sort of the traditional instruments and techniques. How long did it take to develop this habitable planet finder instrument? Right, to go from design to finally putting it on the telescope and doing science was approximately a 10-year effort. Uh, and there was a, a team of more than a dozen scientists who worked uh, really hard to get this made, and, and we're all really proud to see it finally achieving such fantastic results. Where is it installed again? It's at the Hobby Everly Telescope, which is the 10-meter telescope in West Texas at McDonald Observatory. So good dark uh, skies and good viewing conditions mostly there? Exactly. It, it's pretty far from, from civilization, so there's not too much light pollution. They get pretty good weather, uh, more than 200 clear nights a year, I think. And so, yeah, it's a really large telescope, and that's another thing that really helps us. These stars, in addition to being really red, are just intrinsically faint. Mm -hmm. And so the bigger mirror you can put in front of your instrument, the more light you're going to collect, and the more precise measurements you'll be able to take. So you and your colleagues don't really even go to the telescope, right? You just sort of get the data? Over That's right. It's really good for those of us who have to teach class in the morning. Uh, HET is operated on what we call a Q schedule, which means there's a, a resident astronomer who lives and works at the telescope, and, and they have targets that are uh, submitted to them by many astronomers who do many different scientific projects, uh, and over the course of the night, that astronomer will take observations for a number of scientists and just email them the data in the morning. Hmm. Uh, so it, it's a really great way to do the kinds of observing programs we're doing where uh, rather than looking at one object for a whole night, uh, we have many objects and, and we want to get you know one visit many times over the course of the year we want to get one quick little look and then we'll come back later in the year and, and get another look hmm. and then compare the data from those two looks exactly we want to see how the stars motion is changing over time because what we're looking for is this tiny wobble of the star that takes place when a planet's gravity pulls on it hmm. and so you can't see that over the course of the night you have to see it over the course of a planet's orbit, which can take a few days or it could take a few years, just like the planets in our solar system. So what's next for this instrument? Do you have kind of a, a list of targets that you're going after now? Right, so we have a, a list of something like 200 stars, and over the next five years we're going to survey them to find where their planets lie. And this is a, a population of stars that has really not been probed by earlier surveys. And so we're really excited to see what surprises they might be holding. Do you think there might be life on some of these planets? I think there's probably life on a lot of these planets. And, and I'm really excited to, to get started in, in looking for it. Uh, I think we'll find over time that uh, many of these planets will have very simple life forms. So single-celled things uh, like bacteria on Earth. Whether something like intelligent life, something we could communicate with, is, is common, uh, I think we don't know enough to say for sure yet. But, of course, we're going to look. Remains to be seen. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We've been talking to Paul Robertson, Assistant Professor of Physics and Astronomy here at UCI, about a new telescope instrument that has just uh, come online and uh, is, is doing some great science so far. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me.
You can read more about Professor Robertson's work with the Habitable Zone Planet Finder in the UCI Newsroom at news.uci.edu. That about does it for this episode of the UCI Podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing about video games in the LGBTQ community and new tools for hunting exoplanets in the Milky Way. We have some interesting subjects lined up for future episodes, so please subscribe to the podcast to keep current with the exciting goings-on here at UCI. The UCI Podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. I'm your host, Brian Bell. Thanks for listening.